So anyway, um, again, thank you for being here today and for the worship that we had. So we're continuing our study in the book of Philippians. And I think this is our fourth or fifth um, Sunday in that right now. And... Um, Today we're still working through chapter 21 or chapter 1 and the title that I have for this is God's purposes are bigger than our circumstances. And that may be an obvious thing, but yet sometimes it's difficult for us to comprehend that and maybe put it into practice. But we've been seeing Paul here as he's going through some difficult circumstances in his life and how he has the heart and mind of Christ that allow him to live above his circumstances. And so I pray that we can do that as well. Paul's attitude um, promoting the gospel is independent of his circumstances. Paul's attitude of promoting the gospel are independent of circumstances. We find Paul in prison here. He's in a two-year prison in Rome, and he's been very active in, in the prison ministry so that um, all the guards know who he is in Christ. I was talking to Pastor Rip about this even this morning, and I know that Pastor Rip's you know, involved in some probate driving of uh, of, of, of uh, young people in trouble and he makes it very clear that pastor rips a pastor in the truck in the in the van and so i kind of look at paul and pastor rip and that all the drivers know that rips a christian and uh there's help there if you'll seek it and uh, and so you know there's some bad problems going on in that van at times but um never too much for god to handle and so that's why we come today and we recognize the fact that our circumstances are never bigger than God, or God is always bigger than them. Philippians chapter 113 says, as a result of Paul's attitude, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I, Paul, am, a, am in change for Christ. I got to imagine that's a powerful motivator for Paul, that God has a purpose for him that is bigger than what he can see, first of all, in his situation. But that is a great motivator for Paul that it gives him a a purpose that gives him the ability to live above his circumstances. A situation where we can look at the bad things that are happening in our life and maybe we can look at it and say, wow, things are so hard that I, I, I'm struggling. And yes, I know we have things that are struggling in our lives. But if we can develop Paul's mindset, if we can develop his heart, that's the thing that really sets a true disciple of Christ apart from a would-be follower of Christ. So let me ask you a question in your, in your situation. What about you? What about me? Can we live the way Paul lived in our situation? In other words, do the people in your sphere of influence know that you're a Christian by the way you handle some problems in life? Do they recognize the fact that you see things a little bit differently than the world sees things? Or are they confused about what you claim to be and what you really are? Because we can confuse people too. We can claim to be a Christ follower, but maybe the way we're living isn't really backing it up. And now all of a sudden people are looking at it and saying, wait, if that's a Christ follower, why would I want to be that? Why would I want to be a part with 
they think they're claiming to be a part of. And, and so it's important that we live according to the purpose that we have. Do you know that you have a purpose? Do you know that you have a purpose in life that's bigger than the problems of your life? So let me ask this question. Do you know your purpose? Think about it for a minute. Do you know why you're here? Do you know what's expected of you? And I would suggest here that if you know your purpose, or if you have a sense of your purpose, maybe it's not perfectly clear, and we go through seasons of life where our purposes might change a little bit, but if you can know your purpose, I will assure you that it will help you. It will help you live above your circumstances. It will help you to live above the problems in life. Because it's, it's allowing you to see that God has a plan bigger than maybe what you can see. And I know that could appear to be one of those idealistic things that preachers pray or preach from the platform. I get that. But I don't think it's idealistic to think this. I don't think it's idealistic to think that we have a purpose. And until you know your purpose, you really can't live above your circumstances. Because you're running around trying to figure things out. You're trying to figure out, God, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing here? It's necessary to have a, let me say it this way, a growing sense of purpose. A growing sense that you're growing and you're growing up in your Christianity and you're growing up in your purpose because as you grow in your purpose, you will grow in your hope, you'll grow in your peace, you'll grow in your assurance of where you're supposed to be in life. And it might take some work. You might have to pray about it a little bit. You might have to read scripture a little bit. You might have to seek God's word. You may have to talk to some other Christian people in your life, some accountability partners. You may have to, to, to work it out. But be sure that God has a purpose, and he wants you to know what it is and how you can live in it. Without exception, there's not a purpose, there's not a person in this building or listening online that doesn't have a purpose in life. You need to know that. And if you understand that purpose, it will help you rise above the circumstances that could be giving you lots of problems. So now let's look at our text this morning as we get into Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. And we're going to see how Paul was able to rise above his circumstances by understanding his purpose where he was at. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Paul says, but what does it matter The important thing is in that every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But we've heard that a lot from people probably. We'll talk about that more. If I am to go on living in the body, that this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. Verse 23, for I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ, Jesus will abound on account of me. Boy, there's a lot of words there. Let's pray. Father, we need your help discerning what Paul is talking about here. Because, Lord, it's one thing to say the words, another thing to live the words. But, God, I pray that you would help us to comprehend the words. What is being said? What do you want us to get out of this message today that will help us, that will give us a better week ahead, no matter what happens in the week ahead, that we'll be prepared for it? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that I see here in this prayer is that Paul is making himself accountable to the Philippian church by honestly evaluating his motives. Listen, I think this is really important. What are your motives? Paul says, but what does it matter? He, what's, what's going on here? Prior to this, there are some that are preaching the gospel. Some are preaching the gospel to help Paul, and some are preaching the gospel to hinder Paul. False teaching. Maybe maybe there's a, a preacher out there of his time that is trying to build a mega church, <laughs> and he's trying trying to you know use the gospel as a way to promote his own agenda. Does that ever happen? Do people use the gospel message to build their own agenda? Yeah, I think so. And Paul's saying, "What does it matter? <laughs> I, I'm not going to get upset about that. As long as they're preaching Christ, I don't really care what their motive is." It's not my, it's not me to judge. Now God will judge the motive of that errant pastor, for sure. But Paul's not. So he says, what does it matter? The important thing is, in that every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Paul's rejoicing here, not because he's getting the credit. Understand this. Paul doesn't care about the church down the street. He's not competing with the church down the street, and neither should we be. But yet, how often do we? How often do churches compete against each other for the bigger congregation or whatever the need is? Stop it. We don't do that. That's not Christ-like. That's not what God has called us to do here. He's called us to preach the gospel in this church and pray for the church down the road that they would preach the gospel in their church and the church on the other side of the street would preach the gospel in their church and pray that they would give a great harvest for the gospel, for the kingdom. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what Paul's doing here. And we need to learn from that. Put away our petty differences and start preaching the fact that God loves you. And he's got a purpose for you. And we need to seek it and find it. So Paul's rejoicing. And it's not because he's getting the credit. Paul's rejoicing because Jesus is being revealed to people no matter the motives of the preacher. He doesn't care. It's about Jesus, not him. Why can he say that? You see, Paul can say that because he sees the bigger picture. His success only comes through the prayers of people and most importantly through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You see, God works in unison with his people. He works in unison with his people because it's the people's prayers that... God hears. And I know that we don't fully understand that. I can't comprehend it. Maybe someday I will. Maybe someday when I finally get to heaven, God will tell me why it was so important that I prayed on earth. 
A lot of it is communication. God wants your time. He wants your attention. But the church in Philippi was concerned about the well-being of Paul. And that's one of the reasons Paul was writing this letter to them, because he wanted them to know, guys, I'm okay. Thank you for your concern, but I'm okay. I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. And you just keep praying for me that God will accomplish the purpose in my life. That's the power of a praying church. And I know that, you know, our church is learning how to do that better and better all the time. We have a prayer chain. And I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to be on it. And that if a need comes up, we do a, a text string and we, 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 we say the need. People respond in prayer. And I'll tell you what, a prayer chain is not a gossip chain. A prayer chain, the reason we have one, is for people will pray. And they'll take a moment. It might be just a moment in your day at that time to say, Father, help that person, whatever it is. I pray that you step in, God, and do the work that you need to do in that person's life. And then as the day goes on, as that person is brought to your mind again, take another minute and pray. Or if you have the time and if you have the, if you are, are, are able to, get down on your knees and pray and, and pray in the Spirit. Man, that's the powerful, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Spirit because the Holy Spirit will pray through you a prayer that God knows that needs to be prayed and the Holy Spirit brings it to God's attention through you or through me. So God works in unison with the people as they pray. And that's how important it is that when we earnestly pray, we give God the authority to work in the needs of the person being prayed for. And you know what happens? When you pray that way, do you know who gets blessed the most? You do. It's like it's like Pam said, she got done playing and she goes, I don't know if it blessed you, but it blessed her for the fact that she's up playing, that it blessed her. And I tell you what, that's the way it happens. Whether you're teaching a Sunday school class or teaching anything, the teacher always gets more out of it than the student, just so you know. The person praying gets more out of it. So don't let the enemy tell you that it's not worthwhile. Don't let the enemy whisper in your mind that it's not worth taking the time to pray. Because it absolutely is. So who is the spirit of Jesus here that Paul's referring to? Well, the spirit of Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit, for sure. And the Holy Spirit is not limited by geographical boundaries. And we know that. But yet sometimes we forget that. That I can pray in the Spirit wherever I'm at, and that prayer wherever I'm praying is just as powerful where I'm at as it is a half a way around the world. He's not limited by geographical preferences. That's why Paul can rejoice, and he will continue to rejoice, because the Holy Spirit has Paul's mindset even in a prison setting. Even in the midst of being chained to palace guards 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Paul can still have a power of the Holy Spirit upon him and through him, no matter his, his situation or his circumstances. Paul is also rejoicing because the people with him in his circumstances are hearing the gospel message. I mean, I, I can just see Rip in the, in the van with, with those young people that are going through problems and Paul, and, and Rip is, is praising the Lord and praying and, and he's being blessed and people are hearing his blessing and, and same thing you, wherever you're at, do whatever you're doing. That God is doing the work in the position where you allow him to be the God of your life. So Paul's condition here 
Listen, Paul's condition wasn't improving. He was still locked in jail. He was still in prison. His condition wasn't improving, but the conditions of the people around him were improving because they were hearing the gospel message. Do you see that? Do you see how God works in you and me in our situations that maybe is not improving my situation? But if I'm being obedient and praying and being bold with my faith, then the people around me may improve in their situation. And what a great motivator that is for us to have, that we can live above our circumstances. You know, Paul also, in his character, honestly recognizes that it was never about his own ability or his, his moral character to do anything, he was relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 19, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, he's giving the credit to the people in the, Philipp- in the church of Philippians to pray, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for good. And I, I want you to know that Paul is no superhuman here. Paul is a man just like you and I. Paul didn't want to be in prison. He didn't want to be locked up. He wanted to be out doing the things he needed to do. So it wasn't Paul's plan or his desire to be held captive for those two years. But yet he knew that God had a plan in his captivity. And Paul was willing to appreciate that. He was willing to live in it without complaining about it. And I think that's something we need to learn about. I think we get too often easy to complain about our woe is me situation. You know what I'm talking about? I know I'm guilty of it. Maybe you are too. Woe is me. You know, the people around me don't love Jesus. I work in a tough environment. You know, I have people swearing and cussing all the time around me. They're telling dirty jokes, and I don't like that, and la-da-da, and all these things. And I can be looking for another job because I want to find the grass is greener on the other side of the fence situation, only to find out that I have to get there. The grass is just as brown there as it was over there. You know, it doesn't really change. You know, so stop, stop moping around. Stop pouting about it. But take the approach to say, you know what, God's got me here. I'm planted here, and he's got a purpose for me to do something right here where I'm at. And maybe I can change somebody's attitude. Maybe I can influence my boss or my coworker or the janitor. Who knows what God has in store? But the thing, the thing I like about Paul is that Paul knew that he had a purpose in the situation. And he wanted to be sure that he completed God's plan for him right where he was at. He didn't want to run away from it. He didn't want to shortcut it. You see, Paul wanted to live with no regrets. Man, think about this for a minute. This is deep. Paul wanted to live a life of no regrets. He wanted to make sure that no matter what the situation was, whether he was in poverty or in riches that he didn't take the easy way out to gain something for himself that would have caused someone else to miss out on something from God. He didn't want to live with regrets. He wanted to be able to look back on his life and not be ashamed of it in any way. Wow. That's big. Do you live that way? Can I live that way? 
that I don't want to have any regrets when I'm done, that I want to live my life so that I can hear the Lord's voice and I can do what he suggests that I do and I can live without regrets. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I in, I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is kind of a be careful what you ask for prayer. Because <laughs> if you say, God, give me a divine appointment today. And if he does... Do you have the courage to step out and do it? Do you have the courage and the boldness to stop in the middle of Myers and pray for that person? You know, a few years ago, this just came to my mind. A few years ago, we're sitting in a Wendy's restaurant. We were traveling down. We were going down someplace, Chris and I. And we were in this restaurant. And um, a Salvation Army worker came in, dressed in his uniform. I mean, I didn't know they wore uniforms, but he was clearly with the Salvation Army, he and a couple of other people. And he sat down next to me, we're eating and, and things, and so I started to chat with him a little bit, just to kind of figure out who he was. And, you know, the Lord just prompted me to pray for him. And I thought, no, God, this is, we're in Wendy's. Come on, I got to, my, my malt's going to melt. I could eat it. He said, no, pray for him. Pray for him. And, and, I, and I said, you know, I said, this is strange. I got to admit, but can I pray for you? And he looked at me kind of like, yeah, why? I said, I don't know why, but I just got to pray for you. He said, sure. So I prayed for him. I have no idea what happened. I never talked to the man afterwards, but you know, he looked at me and said, thank you. And here's the thing, guys, when you do that, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea what you're releasing in heaven on that person's behalf. Because you took, you were obedient to the Lord's prompting to say, get out of your comfort zone and do something for somebody else. And see what God does. And there's been multiple times like that. And you, I'm sure, could have other, your, your own experiences of that. But Paul wants to make sure that he lives with no regrets. And so when I walked out of that place, I wanted to make sure that I didn't have any regrets about that. I didn't want, I wanted to make sure that I didn't think, boy, I missed that opportunity. Now I've missed opportunities for sure. Have you? How many times have you walked out thinking, boy, the Lord asked me to do something and I was afraid to do it? Well, thank the Lord he's gracious because he'll give you a second opportunity. But next time, just be bold about it. It's one of those, be careful what you ask for, prayers. But then get ready. Get ready for what God's going to do. Because he'll do an amazing work if you're obedient. So this is something we could stay here a long time. But I want to ask a question. This is a good time for us to pause and just reflect on our attitude a little bit and our aspect of life. Do you and I have the same conviction that Paul had? Think about your life for a minute. What motivates you? What convicts you? Are we asking the Holy Spirit to give us the courage and the strength to live a life that you won't be ashamed of at the end? You need to ask Him. You need to ask Him. You need to, be, you need to make yourself available and be willing to let the Lord work in you. This is really serious because without this, you won't, you won't be 
identified as anything different than the rest of the world. Because this is a separator from a would-be follower to a true disciple of Christ. Your ability to listen and respond and obey is what makes you different than the person that claims to be a follower of Christ and doesn't do anything. Because people will look at you a little bit differently. And they'll respect you for it. Can I just say that? You might think they're going to ridicule you, but you know what, honesty? If they're ridiculing you, that means they respect you. Be bold. Step up. Don't be afraid of what people are going to think. Because when you do that, you're giving God the ability to work powerfully in their life and also in your life. Somehow, unfortunately, somehow that this distinction of being a disciple of Christ has been reduced down from a man that would be so controlled by the holy life of living for Christ and a worthy life of living for Christ that to a person that has compromised with the pleasures of accepting worldly standards with just a hint or a twist of spirituality. Just enough truth in it to make you look like a Christian, but without the power of being a Christian. Why is that happening? First of all, do you see it happening? Do you see it happening in maybe your life and people around you that we're afraid to step out in the boldness of the Holy Spirit because we don't want to be looked at. We don't want to miss the mark. We don't want to be... We don't want to look silly in front of people. Again, there's that idealistic mindset again. Recognize that, you know what? God is an idealist. <laughs> he is. And that's okay because you know why he's an idealist? Because he can deliver on what he says. If he gives you a prompting to pray, recognize that God is willing to do the work. You don't have to do the work. You just pray and let God do it because God's an idealistic realist. He will make it happen according to his power as you and I are obedient just to pray. And then watch him do the miraculous. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that fun to think that? And then watch your life. Watch how people look at you differently. Everything that you do has consequences. And the sooner that we accept the fact that actions have consequences, it might, might help us to live a better life. Think of it this way. We have the power to choose whatever we want to do. But you don't have the power to choose the consequences thereof. You have the power to choose whatever you want to do. But you don't have the power to control the consequences. Once the deed is done, the resulting consequence is already a set in motion. Forgiveness, if it's a bad deed, forgiveness is possible for sure. But oftentimes the consequences will still linger and can be a lifelong struggle. So think about that. Before you do the deed, think about the consequences that are going to come. Yes, God will forgive. He's faithful in that. His grace and his mercy is, is abounding for sure. But consequences still are in action. So think about the thing, good or bad. 
Do you want the consequence of what that action is going to bring about? Because the law of the harvest says it's going to. What you sow, you will reap. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap death. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. That's what the Bible says. Paul clearly understood that law, that spiritual law. Therefore, he was desiring to live so that the consequences that followed his life, both in life in prison, life on earth, and life in death, would not shame him in any way. You know, when you can get that group, when you can get that concept in your mind, do you know that life will just take on a different look to you? When you can look at it that way, then you lose the fear of some things. And fear is a terrible thing. Fear is a terrible thing in our life. Because fear robs you of joy. Fear robs you of hope. Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 and 24, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will be fruitful labor for me. But yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Do you ever do that? Do you ever, <laughs> do you ever feel yourself torn that Jesus, come quickly? Jesus, I'm ready to go home today. <laughs> do you ever feel that? I think that's a good thing. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a death wish. It's, that's not morbid. You're, you're not committing suicide here. I'm not saying that. I'm not promoting that at all. But there's a sense of, God, I know that you have so much more in store for me when I finally get there. And I'm anxious. You know, you plan a vacation. And you're anxious to get on the vacation, aren't you? You're anxious to get on to that destination. Now me, I, 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 I dream about golf courses. <laughs> I dream about going down. I, I watch some of these professional golf, you know, these tournaments, and I'm thinking of those golf courses and thinking, man, I want to be on that golf course. Look how beautiful that is. And then I see how bad my swing is, and I'm thinking, no, I'll go back to my simulator. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, it's, it's okay to have that desire, because when you have that desire in you, it gives you a hope, it gives you a purpose, it gives you a reason to keep moving forward. But Paul said, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I got to say that that's the attitude that Paul had is the secret of living life without fear, especially of death. Do you want to be free of fear? Then find your purpose. You want to find, you want to be free of anxiety? Then find your purpose. You see, Paul recognizes the rewards of living a faithful life for Christ is by far greater than living anywhere else or doing anything else on this planet. And again, this is not a death wish. This is not a suicidal pact. That's not it at all. But it's the reality of God's creation and his eternal desire to have a relationship with the creator that is the most precious desire a person can have. The fact that we want to be with Jesus. And you know, that's, I think that's just kind of the mark of a Christian. If a person is living a marginal Christian life, they probably don't have much of a desire to be with Jesus. Why do I say that? Because they don't have much of a desire to be in church. 
I mean, if you struggle with coming into church, if you struggle with coming into worship and being in prayer with, with like-minded believers, then why do you think you'll want to be in the presence of God in heaven if you don't want to be in his presence on earth? Think about that. If you don't find yourself being drawn to the presence of God now, that's an indicator in your life that maybe something's not right. Maybe I don't have that right relationship with God that I think I have because I don't have a desire to be in his presence. Because that's what heaven's going to be about. It's going to be about being in the presence of God. And why do I think I'm going to have it then if I don't have it now? Think about it. Dwell on it a little bit. Let it be a motivator to you to maybe I need to get into God's word. Maybe I need to make a change in my life. Maybe I need to depend on the Holy Spirit a little bit more. You see, because when I get that attitude that I cannot, I I don't have to have that fear of, of death. I don't have to have that fear of the unknown. Now, let me say this too, because I don't want to make it too idealistic here. Because even with this understanding of life after death, there is a natural fear or anxiety of dying. I, I get that. I can remember talking to my dad when he had pulmonary fibrosis and he had a five-year deal with that. And I remember as, as he got closer to death, um, and, and i got to tell you, the, the, the testimony of my dad's life in the last five years just gives me so much confidence where I'm at today, where he's at today, because I saw him really change. For anybody that knew my, da- my, my dad, Dawson, you, you saw the change in his last five years of his life, for sure. But yet we would talk about dying quite off, quite openly. And he would say to me, I'm like, I, I have no fear of taking my last breath. I have no fear of dying. I have no fear of where I'm going to go. But I've never died before. I don't know what it's going to feel like. So there was a natural, anticip- or a natural anxiety or a trepidation of the process of dying. And I think that's natural. And I don't think you need to be ashamed of that. I'm not trying to say that. I don't want to, ideali- I don't want to make it so idealistic to think that you should have no fear. You should have no... There's a natural anxiety about dying. And I get that. But we can't let that be the thing that that takes over our life. We have to know that God has everything in control. I did a little research on the fear of death this week, and I, and I read some interesting things on in the website, and, and, and most of the things I read were not from Christian, um, a Christian perspective, because, you know, the, the concept of dying is a complicated, a complicated question. It, it appeared that it was the younger people the younger, healthy people that had a greater fear of death than older people that are actually closer to death. And they had many reasons for why that is. But one of the reasons was that the older people um, have already sensed a good life and they have less FOMO. Do you know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. <laughs> They've already experienced most of their life ahead, so they don't, I've already done that, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Whereas young people, you know, they don't wanna, they wanna have, they wanna get married, they wanna have children, they wanna have a career, they wanna have this, all this, and all that, thinking life's gonna be so grand. But the most interesting category to me, what I found here, was that those that feared death the most, and I'm using their words, were the moderately religious people. The moderately religious people. <laughs> 
But they said that both extremes, the non-believers or the zealous, very religious people, feared death less. But the moderately religious people had anxiety over death. Let me give you, let me read the, the, a quote from Psychology Today. It says, perhaps being moderately religious puts people in the existential sweet spot for being afraid of death. They're not as relaxed as non-believers, but they also don't hold the same strong convictions about the afterlife that very religious people do. In other words, the moderate religious person or the marginal Christian or the carnal Christian, they've heard the truth of God's word and they know God's justice is going to be, his, his judgment is going to be just, but yet they have the inability to separate themselves from sin. They find themselves compromising with sin all the time because it keeps pulling them in. And so they know that it's not right what they're doing, but they don't have enough character. They don't have enough stand-upness to stop doing the sin. So they find themselves always in the repeat cycle. They're swayed easily by the worldly culture and they enjoy the pleasures of the moments. And they just can't break the pull of sin. But yet they know that if they die, they're not going to a good spot. You know, that's the old fence sitter. Anybody been one? Anybody know what I'm talking about here? That you, you know, you, you know enough. You can say the right things in church. You can fool a lot of people. But you know deep down that you're not quite right. And there is anxiety there. And there should be anxiety there. There should be anxiety because you know something should be done and you don't have enough character within yourself to step up and do it. And that's a scary place to be. Amen? So if a person, I have some good news, the way to break out of this chronic fear of death, there's only one way to do it. And it's a three-step process, repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? Repentance recognizes the fact that you've done something wrong. That there is sin in your life and you know it. So you come to the understanding that you need to acknowledge it. And then you need to be willing to turn away from an intentional repeat of that sin. Go the other direction. That's the first step. That you must recognize that your sin, there is sin in your life. The Bible says, and we could quote all kinds of scriptures, that if a person denies they have sinned, they make God out to be a liar. Because all men have, are sinful. We are born with a sinful nature. None of us are good enough in ourselves. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of Christ is eternal life. That's number one, repentance. And then the second step is forgiveness. And that's where we recognize that Jesus' death on the cross covers our sin. Not just covers it, it takes it away. I mean, it's like I never sinned. That's, it's just like Jesus says, I forgive you to the point that I'm never going to hold it against you. When he forgives, he forgets. Amen. Forgives and forgets. You know why is that so important? Because your past doesn't dictate your future. Your past does not control your future if you will ask for forgiveness. Jesus forgives. He restores without regard to the nature of the sin. And then the third step, here's a big word for you. You can learn something spiritual today. Sanctification. A big Christianese word, sanctification. What is this? Sanctification is 
two steps. There is an immediate sense of sanctification as soon as you're saved, as soon as you've asked Jesus to your heart and you've asked for forgiveness, you're immediately sanctified, meaning set apart. And then there's day two of your Christianity. It means that you have to have continual sanctification. They're ongoing. That you have to continue to work out your salvation. We're going to talk about this later in Philippians. Paul talks about this. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But this is moving from day one salvation of, to the rest of your life, working out your salvation as you continually choose to repeat the repent forgiveness cycle. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to every morning when you get up to say, Father, you know, I want to reflect on yesterday. What did I do yesterday? And if I did something bad, acknowledge it. Repent of it. Say, Father, forgive me. I didn't mean to do that. Forgive me. Help me. Help me today not to repeat that process. And you know what? When you keep living like that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to become a better person. Not because of your own self, but because of the fact that Christ is helping you. The power of the Holy Spirit is helping you to realize that there's sin in your life. Even after you've accepted Christ, you did, that didn't make you perfect. It didn't make me perfect. No, I still have issues. I still have sin. I still deal with things. But I don't deal with it the same way I did before my initial repentance forgiveness cycle. Now I know what it means. I go back and I say, Father, I have sinned. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he does, and I move on. And I intentionally don't go back and do the thing I did yesterday, intentionally. I make mistakes, but I don't make them intentionally. Amen? Does that make sense? And that is why Paul can say and accept this in his life, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, because he understands the process. And in this process, death has no grip of fear. Because now he isn't afraid to live, and he's not afraid to die. Because if I live, it's Christ. And if I die, it's gain. And man, that is peaceful living there, guys. When I can have that in my heart, to know that if I'm living, what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be making fruitful labor. I'm supposed to be working in the kingdom. I'm supposed to be showing the love of Christ. But if I die, so be it. Why fear that? Why fear it? I can have joy in living, and I can have joy in dying, and I don't have to let the fear of death in any way, shape, or form motivate me to change that. And i got to tell you, this world is full of fear. The pharmaceuticals love to preach fear. Watch the commercials on TV. What are they doing? They're trying to pad their pocketbooks by making you afraid of everything that comes along. So therefore, take every vaccine, take every drug, take everything, because you've got to live everything in this life. Nonsense. You know, live a healthy life. Yeah, certainly. Take care of yourself. Exercise. Do all that good stuff. Eat a good diet. I'm not saying that we don't do that. But don't be afraid of living. Because you're afraid of dying. Can I tell you that even Jesus had angst about dying? Even Jesus had angst about dying. It wasn't that he was afraid to die. It wasn't that he was afraid to see his father. But there was a process in his life, that death process that Jesus was going to through, which gave him quite a lot of anxiety. Luke 22, chapter four, verse 42, he says, This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, 
please take this cup from me. I don't want to die. I don't want to go through this process. But what did he say? Not my will, but theirs. And God heard the prayer. And so what did God do? Verse 43. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. He didn't take his fear away. He didn't take the process away. But he sent an angel to comfort him. And you know what? God will send an angel to you to comfort you in your fear of the process. He's not going to take the process away. We're still going to die. We're still going to go through all the stuff. But God will send an angel. He will send an angel of comfort to you in a way that's, that's unique to your situation. And that's what kept Jesus on his track. Because Jesus understood, first of all, he understood his purpose. He had a purpose of why he was there. There was a purpose for his suffering. There was a purpose for his death. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, who is him, Jesus, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus endured the cross. Did he enjoy it? Absolutely not. There was no joy for him. There was no pleasure. There's no pleasure in your life in some situations, and that's okay. But you endure it. The joy set before him, who is that? The joy set before Christ is you and me. His church today, we gave him the joy that, so that he could endure the cross because he was looking down the road. He saw the bigger picture of the circumstances that he was in at that moment. And he saw your life and he saw your joy and he saw eternal life with you. And he said, for that reason, Father, I will go through with it. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Does that give you a little hunger to see him someday face to face and to tell him thanks? Can you imagine what that's going to be like? That first glimpse of Jesus. When you look in his eyes and you see that love. I can't even begin to imagine. No matter how hard life is today, guys, no matter where you're at in your circumstances, God is bigger. And he's going to allow you to get through your circumstances. And this is why Paul could write to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our, here's this, listen to this. For our light and momentary troubles. Now listen. I can't imagine Sasha and Olga Skrypak for their light and momentary troubles of losing their home to war. But you know what, folks? Our problems are light and momentary. No, no matter how bad they are, our problems for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. In other words, they're working for us. We're struggling. We're surviving. We're suffering for a purpose. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that fires outweigh the problems. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So stop looking at your problems as being the biggest thing in your life and start looking at the eternal because we can't see it, but it's so much bigger than our problem and it's so much better. And we're going to get through the problems and it's going to make us stronger as a result. And hopefully it's not only going to be stronger for you, but for the person sitting next to you at work. Or maybe in your home. Or maybe with your children. This is how important it is for us to understand that God has a plan for our life. No matter what the circumstances are we find ourselves in, God has a plan. And this is what Paul says as we finish it up on our text today, Philippians chapter 1, 22-24. Paul says, if I am to go on living on the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I, do not, I, do, I don't know, Paul says, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to be with Christ. But yet it is more necessary for me that I remain in my body with you. Paul understood his purpose. And as long as he was willing to live out his purpose, he wasn't going to quit. I want to encourage you today. Don't quit. Don't quit. Understand your purpose. One of the enemy's most powerful tactics is to convince a person that he hasn't have a he doesn't have a place or a purpose in the kingdom of God. Many people I've heard him say things like this. I don't have a spiritual gift. I can't sing. I can't play the piano. I can't teach. I can't do anything valuable. Therefore I don't have a place. Therefore they have no purpose in the kingdom. Where does that come from? The devil from the pit of hell, of course. Or maybe I've heard people have an attitude this way, that I'm above certain responsibilities in the body of Christ. Me? Me, me clean a bathroom? Seriously? You're going to ask me to clean the bathroom? You're going to ask me to shovel the sidewalk? Do you know who I am? Me to come down to that point? Or me to teach kids? Me to be with the nursery? Are you kidding me? See, either we can have a real low perspective of ourselves or a real high perspective of ourselves, and either way, it keeps us from having a purpose in the kingdom. Either way, the devil wins. We need to see ourselves for who we really are, and that's exactly what Paul did. That's exactly what he did, and that's how we can learn from him. You see, finding God's purpose pushes out fear of life and replaces it with a fulfilling and a fruitful sense of godly accomplishments in life. Because Paul says some things here in the last couple of verses that might seem like he's boasting, but he's not boasting. Philippians one twenty five and 26, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So is that saying that Paul says, I'm, I'm taking credit? Therefore, I'm, 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 he's boasting? No. The NLT says it this way, And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus, because of what is what he's doing through me. What this is, this is a a a a boastful pride this way, in that it's he's saying that it's the job well done. 
That I'm doing my job and Jesus is going to say, well done, Paul, you did a good job. This is the kind of pride that shows us that we're completely depending on God and accomplishing all that he wants to do through us. That's a good pride. It is a pride that says, I'm doing the things that God has asked me to do to the best of my ability, and I'm letting the Holy Spirit do the work. Make sense? Pam and Tom, would you come up, please? So what do we take away from the message today? What's our takeaway here? Well, I don't know where you're at on the spectrum of knowing your purpose, but until you know your purpose, you're going to struggle. I encourage you, to dig in and know your purpose in the body of Christ. And here's the thing, guys. You don't have to be a world changer or be the superstar to have a purpose. You don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed to have a purpose. God, remember this. God doesn't measure success the way we do. God measures success through a willing heart and a heart that's saying, God, use me. Use me, even in the small things. Use me. Don't measure yourself up against another person in order to measure yourself as a success or a failure. Don't fall into that trap. But rather seek the will of God and let him lead us in the purposes and that sense of accomplishment that only he can offer. And I want to, I want to pray this prayer for you today. The prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Colossians. I, this is, I pray this. This is one of my life prayers. This is one of the passages that I've memorized. And I pray this on a regular basis for myself. And I want to pray it for you as Paul prayed for the church in Coloss of that day. He said in Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 9, he says, For this reason, since the day that we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through the wisdom and understanding that the Lord's Spirit, that the Holy Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. I encourage you to take a prayer like this. Memorize it. Personalize it. Make it a prayer for you. And then let God then just work his purpose in you. And as he does, he will take your fear of living and he'll take your fear of dying and he'll replace it with a sense of accomplishment and a sense of hope and purpose for the future. Amen? And then you can take your eyes off of this world, just just like the song that they're playing. Take your eyes off this world and place them on Jesus. Stand with me if you will. Let's sing the song, then we'll pray. Yeah.
Amen. Thank you, Father. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just go with us today. And Lord, let us do that. Let us look fully in your face today and see your glory, see your greatness, see your grace and mercy that is just looking for us and searching us out of our problems that we could look up to you and just lose our fear of living and lose our fear of dying and just be so set on you that all we want is to be in your presence. And I pray, Father, that you would just glorify yourself to us today as we go into our world of influence. God, that we would be faithful, that we would be, that we would be sheep makers this week. God, that we would be feeding into the lives of people like Paul fed into the lives of the criminal, of the guards around him and the other, others that were with him. I pray, Father, that you would just be glorified. Strengthen us, I pray. We love you, Jesus. We praise your name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day. Be blessed.